First John chapter 4, 7 through 16, what is love really? We're going to really find out what love is. If you would, please stand for reading of God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. What is love really? What is love really? Now, the theme of 1 John is that you may know that you have eternal life. Good job. And we know this by three doctrinal tests. Three doctrinal tests, or three tests. Number one is the doctrinal test. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Son of God, or is he a prophet? Is he a great teacher? Or is he the second person of the Trinity? Is he God incarnate? And we believe that he is God incarnate, God in flesh. Then it's the lifestyle test. Do we simply obey what Jesus taught us? Are we obeying the commands of God? That's another test for us. And it's a social test, and John over and over and over goes over this. We must love the brethren, and that demonstrates that we're genuinely believers. And again, all these tests are for you to look inwardly. How am I doing? Not to judge somebody else. Oh, you're not loving your brother or your sister. Oh, you're not obeying the commands. No, it's for us. It's, 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 it's introspection. Now, last week we talked about discerners must test all things. And we went through a couple of things, but the summation of this is we are to test the spirits and we are to test the teachers and their followers. The teachers and their followers. Testing the spirit simply means we're to discern, we're to judge, we're to examine if something is true. The reason that we can examine whether something is true is because we have something very, very special that lives within us, and that is called the Holy Spirit. Yes, and in John 16, 13, he is called the Spirit of Truth, and the Spirit of Truth will guide you into all truth. So we have something very special. Again, there are two spirits in the world. There's the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer, and then there's the spirit of the age, there's the Antichrist spirit, or the satanic spirit, that is, that is designed to take you away from the truth, to, de- to be deceptive and to take you away from the truth, to lead you into error and lies. Now, the problem is, is that this spirit of darkness masquerades as a spirit of light. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15, we read these words. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, looking just like apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. So it is very, you have to be very discerning when these people are trying to masquerade as light, but they are not truly of the light not truly of the light. Remember, deception is Satan's goal. Masquerading is what he does. So what must we do? We must test the spirits. 
And how do we test the spirits of the prophets? We test everything according to the word of God. So what do you need if you're going to test everything according to the word of God? What must you have in your possession? You must have a Bible. That's right, a Bible. There's so many places that the Bible has been excluded. I mean, you go to any number of churches in this city, and you will be hard-pressed to find a Bible actually being brought into the service. Most people leave them at home because you don't need them. Well, that's not what we want to test it according to the Word of God. So, does it match up with Scripture? And then we test the teachers and their followers. And the biggest test of any teacher or followers, how do they view Jesus? How do they view Jesus? Remember, all cults and all world religions deny the deity of Christ. All cults and all world religions deny the deity of Christ. That's, that's it's kind of easy for us to identify that. But what about this? What about those who believe in the deity of Christ? How do we test what they are saying is valid? How do we test what they are saying is valid? You know, we can look at all kinds of things that a church promotes. We can go to their websites. We can look at their doctrinal statements. We can look at all the things that they say. You can't tell by that. You must hear the teacher teach. And you must be a, remember in, in Acts chapter 17, there was a, a church that was more noble than the Thessalonians, and they were the Bereans, and they searched the scriptures in, in Acts 17.11. It says this, they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word. They received the word of God. Now, that is a very important thing to focus on. They didn't receive the signs and wonders and the miracles. They did, not, they did not receive the drama that was going on. They did not receive all the smoke and mirrors that goes on in, in, in a lot of things that we see, the, the movie clips, the, the little book readings and that sort of thing. They received the word, and they, with all readiness, they searched the scriptures daily to find out of whether these things were so. That is the responsibility for every Christian sitting under any teacher. My job is to rightly divide the word of truth. Your job is that, Make sure I'm rightly dividing the word of truth. So we all have a, have a job in this. So we need, a, we need a scripture, we need a Bible to know what the truth is. And again, the predominant way that, that ministry is done in the Western culture is throw a verse up, usually out of context, apply that to the, your subject that you're teaching, and then bring in a lot of other stuff that isn't, that isn't the scripture. And that isn't what we want to do here. Remember, the, the, the goal in the Western church is to build numbers to look like the society, to look like the world. What did Jesus do? Jesus was very counter to that. He actually thinned the group. He thinned them. His teaching thinned them out. They started running away. I can't do it. I deal with that, with what Jesus is saying. Remember, follow, follow the true master. Follow the Savior. Test all things. Now, this week, John again focuses on love. What is love really? What is it really? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word. And Lord, we need you. We need you to illuminate the scriptures to us. We need you to apply it to each one of our hearts. We need to hear you speak to us individually in our area of need. And we look forward to what you will do in each one of our hearts today as we hear the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is love really? Well, John Stott has this to say about, about love. He said, the early church father, Jerome, said that when the apostle John was an extremely old man, he was weak, he had to be carried into the church meetings. At the end of the meeting, he would be helped to his feet and give a word of exhortation 
to the church. Invariably, he would repeat, little children, let us love one another. Week after week after week after week. Little children, let us love one another. And finally, someone asked him, why are you saying this over and over? And he said very succinctly, he says, because it's the Lord's commandment. And and if this is done, it is enough. It is enough. Week after week. So 1 John is over and over talking about love, talking about love, talking about love. We've seen it in in, in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. He hit it again in chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. In the section of Scripture we are in today, it is the broadest, broadest of, of all, the, all the times that he hits it. He hits it longer and harder than any other point in, in his book. And he wants us to understand that loving the brethren is not optional. It is essential. It is, it is an indication that you're truly in the family of God. Now, what is love really? What is love really? Uh, this is this is a problem, I think, for for each one of us to know really what love is, and I, and I want to just share with you what an honest young lady said. She said this. She said, "See you later," to her friend. I call cheerily as I wave goodbye from the front door. I walk slowly inside, close the door, and a small sla- sigh of relief escapes me. Immediately, I feel guilty. A perfectly nice girl. And I just don't like being around her. And I don't know why. Now, this is honesty. This is honesty. And then she thinks this to herself. And tell me if this doesn't resonate. You're such a hypocrite. A small voice in my head jeers at me. Call yourself a Christian? Christians are supposed to love their enemies. Everyone knows that. You don't even love your friends. And you feel that condemnation. Trying to love didn't help. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. And it goes on to say this. It hasn't helped true. Maybe I don't really dislike them, but even after I've denied my irritation and annoyance, all that is left is a kind of neutrality towards them, an empty space devoid of any kind of feeling. And I can't say I enjoy being around them, let alone love them. This is honesty. This is honesty. I want you to think about something. Remember this. Love is an action. Love is a verb. It's an action, okay? It's not a feeling. And I'm going to talk about this more later. Remember, fact, faith, feeling. The choo-choo train of fact, faith, and feelings. We don't trust our feelings. We are called to love agape, and we're going to define that in just a few minutes, based on the direction of our will and not on our feelings. So with that stated, with that stated, Josh McDowell has done a wonderful website on what love really is. And when I was, at, we were at Maranatha last summer, we had Josh McDowell for a week, and he talked on this subject. And he shared this information. This is from, the, from him. How do you define love? Now, please hear this. Defining love is critical, for love drives us, motivates us, yet many Christians can't even truly explain what it is. He goes on to say, if you can't define love, how do you know whether you're being loved? How do you know whether you're loving someone else? If you can't define love, how do you know whether or not you're having a loving relationship? And typically he gets three answers when, when he asks a group, like when we we're at Maranatha, there's several hundred people there, and they ask the group what love is, and no one could actually come up. But the group came up with these three things that he actually shares this, share, that I'm going to share with you. He says, love is God. So many people say love is God, and everybody goes, yeah, love is God. God is love. And that's our, 
And he goes on to say, what does that mean? A definition should not be open to every individual's interpretation. The second one is, is love is 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is that proud, is that, that whole thing. But he said that, de- that describes the fruit of love. And then many people say love is a feeling. Love is a feeling. Well, if it's a feeling, then everybody's feelings are different. We have a different feeling about what love is. And so he, the, the thing here is, is what is love really? And he says love is a choice. Love is a direction of the will. Love is something that you are determining to do no matter what. That is agape love. So what is love really? And how do we really love others? We're going to find out momentarily. Starting in verse 7 and 8, we're going to answer this question. What is love for others really? Verse 7 and 8. Beloved. So that's speaking to the church, speaking to Christians. Let us love one another, for love is of God. That's a test of genuineness. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He does, not, he does not dumb down this at all. He is right in our face. We have to love the brethren if we are truly in the family of God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. John wants us to know specifically this is a requisite. This is a requirement. This is a must for Christians. But how do we actually do this? Well, a base requirement to love someone really is that you must be born again. That is the base level of of requirement. You have to be born again. To truly love another person, warts and all, the cactus person that is prickly and you don't like to get too close to them, you must be born of God. So you can love your husband sometimes. You can love your wife sometimes. You can love your children sometimes and your grandchildren and your, and your friends and that sort of thing. And you can love chocolate cake and you can love baseball and you can love a lot of things. But it takes something special for you to love all people. That's something special. That's something supernatural. Let's, let's define it. Love is agapeo or agape, and it's a direction of the will. It's not a feeling. It's giving another what they need not necessarily what they want. It's giving them what they need, not what they want. There are several words in Greek for love. There's storge love, which is family love, the love that you have within a family unit for your children, husband, wife, and that sort of thing. There's phileo love, which is friendship love. And this is reciprocal. You love me, I love you, we're friends together, we have things in common, that sort of thing. And then there's eros love, which is the feelings love. That is the love that attracts you together as husband and wife. That is that little thing in your stomach that you can't hardly stand to be away from that, that person. And you've fallen in love, and you, and you want to be with them all the time, and you can't hardly be separated from them. But that feeling fades. And Josh McDowell shares, within two to three years, universally, that feeling goes. And many, many, many people say, We've fallen out of love because we don't have that feeling. So they're going after arrows over and over. That is not what's going to keep you together. It's going to be agape. It's going to be phileo. That's going to keep you together as a husband and wife. So agape love. There's toxic love. Toxic love. The culture is full of it. If you love me, you would do this for me. Now, how many times has that happened in the backseat of a car? When some young guy wants to have his way with a girl, 
If you love me, you would do this. No, no. If you love me, you wouldn't ask me to do that. You fill in the blank. Give me what I want. I call this baby love, toddler love, self-indulgent love. And it's awful when a 40, 60, or an 80-year-old person has this level of love. You give me what I want, and I'll love you. What are we supposed to do? We'll give you what you need. And what do we need? Boundary, structure, order, direction, that sort of thing. Then there's the smothering type of love. This is the love that you find in country music. You love me and I love, you know, smothering kind of love. It's country music love, okay? That's not what we want. What we want is God's love. Beloved, love one another. Because Jesus commanded it in John 13, 34 through 35. The new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. That is the command. The key is, as I have loved you. Now, how did Jesus love us? How are, what are we to learn from Jesus about love? Jesus loved us sacrificially, sacrificially, unconditionally, and he was fully, fully, fully committed to the mission, fully committed. Now, real love, and this is, this is from Josh McDowell, does this. Please, if you don't remember anything else in this talk, real love does this. It nourishes, it provides for and protects, it nurtures to maturity. It nurtures to maturity. Now, how will this actually look? How will this actually look? What are the uh, fruits of real love? Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You know what that means? Love never quits. Love never quits. God's love goal for all of us, all of his children, is for us to be mature and look more like Jesus and less like us, not act on our feelings. And again, you must be born of God and know God to love like God. Again, God's love nourishes. God's love cherishes us to maturity. Ephesians 5.25 gives us a hint of how this looks. Husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We are to love sacrificially, give ourselves for our brides. That's sacrificial love. It says in, in, in Ephesians 5, 28, love our own wives as we love our own bodies. And it says in 529, we are to nourish and cherish our wife like we cher- cher- nourish and cherish our bodies. We're to provide for and to protect. Real love provides for and protects the one that is loved. Now, there's been a flip. There's been a flip in America, especially with husbands and wives, because many times the, what has happened here, the wife has become the provider and the protector instead of the husband being the provider and the protector. And more and more we are seeing, I don't want to step on anybody's toes here, but I think this is appropriate. I think that the husband is responsible for providing for his family and the wife for nurturing the children. All, both are, need to be involved in this. But the primary role, there's primary roles that makes a family a family. Uh, what has happened in our country is more and more we are seeing men wanting to stay home with the kids and the wife going off to work. There's been a flip. There's been a reverse. And, and I think that has been detrimental because moms have a specific gift of nurturing. That, that you hope a dad has some of that, but generally they don't have it like the mom. They don't have it like the mom. Sorry if I stepped on your toes, but I just have to 
try to tell you what I think is the truth. So true godly love nourishes, brings to maturity, and grows. Now look, Jesus is always our model. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Now the context here is that Jesus is 12 years old, and he's going to his first Passover in Jerusalem. Every able-bodied man, Jewish man, if he can get to Passover in Jerusalem for that feast, he is to do it. Now, when a Jewish boy turns 13, that's his bar mitzvah, that is when he is considered a man. In our culture, we never know when they're going to be a man. You can be 30, you know, again, it's not age. It's not age, it's mature. But in this culture, you you, you, you were 13, you were treated like a man and expected to act like a man. There's a lot of expectations that we have with our young people. We coddle them until they're way older than they need to be coddled. Uh, and again, we should nurture them and encourage them, and that sort of thing. But there's a time when they're to grow up. Well, Jesus is 12 years old, and 13, they have his bar mitzvah, and he gets forgotten. The caravan leaves to go back to, get to Nazareth, and he's forgotten, and they come back and they have a panic attack after three days. Where's Jesus? I don't know. I thought you said he was. Where is he at? He's, in, he's not in this group. Where is he? So they go back, and they find him teaching in the temple. And he says he has to be about his father's business. And in verse 51, we read these words. Then he got, we went, he got on board. He went back with them. Then he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. See, he's still the son. He's still submitted to them. He's still obedient to his parents. He was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. Watch what happened to Jesus. If this happened to Jesus, this has to happen to us. Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and with men. Jesus increased in wisdom, which is mental, emotional. Jesus grew in stature, which was physical, in favor with God spiritually and and with men relationally. He grew in these areas, and there's an expectation for us to grow, to not stay the same, to grow in these areas. Agape love, sacrificial love, puts others first, nourishes, cherishes one to maturity, to maturity. Parents owe their children to model, a model this for their children, agape love, to nourish, to provide for, to cherish, to protect them, to maturity. Now, how does this look? Now, this is from Josh McDowell. He says these five A's. We are to affirm. Affirmation is number one. The child must, and this isn't just for the child. You can extrapolate this and and apply it to any love relationship, husband, wife, that sort of thing. Affirmation is essential. You have value. Acceptance, I accept you as you are. I'm not expecting you to be what I want you to be. I accept you as you are as a person. I appreciate you for who you are. And then appropriate affection, loving that, that child, and then being available for the child, being available. Now, the same thing goes for husbands and wives. And I have a little overhead here that I think is so important for men. And it says, the greatest thing a man can do to a woman is to lead her closer to God than to himself. Lead her closer to God than to him. He doesn't have to be the king baby of the family. We are leading our family closer to God. And we're going to do that by doing those affirming, appreciating, affection, availability, that sort of thing. And remember, I don't know if you remember the triangle. 
But God is at the apex of the triangle. Husband and wife are down here. And the closer we grow to God, the closer we will grow to one another. The closer we will grow to one another. A husband's responsibility is to nurture his wife so that she is closer to God and closer to God all the time. All the time. And then I wanted to make just a side note here for singles. And that's the next slide. It says, don't settle, and I'm going to add this, don't settle for a boy or a girl who just goes to church. There's a lot of people that go to church that really don't want to be in church, want nothing to do with church, and are kind of chameleons. And, and people get, get drawn into, oh, they go to church. They must be Christians. They must be great and wonderful. Wait for a man or a woman after God's heart. That takes time. That takes time in that relationship. Because our God writes the best love stories, and his choice is always, and I've added, best and blessed. Oh, wait for the one that God has for you. Wait for the one that God has for you. That's the important thing. What is love for others, really? Love is sacrificial. Love nourishes and cherishes to maturity. It's not a feeling. Godly love is an act of the will, is an act of the will. And you've got to admit, you don't feel like being all lovey-dovey all the time. Let's be honest about this. It's an act of the will. And it's God living in us, overflowing from us into our world around us. Verse 9 through 11. What is love really? Well, God modeled love in verses 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was manifested or made known towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Oh, not that we love God, Mm-mm. but that God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loved us, we are to model this and love one another. In, in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated it. He demonstrated his love. God willed to love us. It's not, simply, it, it's not simply words, but it's an action. 1 John 3.18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, it's important that people know that you love them. It's important to say, I love you, and that sort of thing. But it isn't important to say, I love you, and just ignore the person and think that you've done your duty. Love is an action. It's more than just words. It's getting involved with the person. Action. And guess what? God loved us. He demonstrated us that his love for us by coming here and dying for us. And we aren't all that lovable. We're not all golden retrievers. You know, all, that all want to be petted. No, no, that's not how we are. Some of us are skunks. Some of us are porcupines, you know. But he loves us, okay? Remember God's agape definition. It's a, it's a direction of the will. God gave what we needed, not what we wanted, his son. His son Jesus sacrificed for us, provides for and protects us. He died for us. That's how he provided for and protects us. God sent his only son. This is demonstrated sacrificial love. Now, why did he do this? That we might live with him forever. You have to believe. You have to receive this for it to, for it to work. He died for all humanity. I think the atonement was universal, 
but is efficacious or effective only for those who believe. You have to believe and receive the gift. So let's have a little review here. We've been down this road before, okay? little review. What most people miss and what most people don't understand is the following. All humans are born with the sin curse and under the wrath of God. That's all humanity, excluding none, all of us. And all mankind are born dead in their trespasses and sin. That's, that's Ephesians 2.1. Our spirits are dead. Dead. When we sin, when Adam and Eve sin, every human born, no matter how cuddly and nice they look, the little baby, sin. Sin. All of us. Dead in our trespasses and sin. That word dead is necros, necrotic tissue. You cut the necrotic tissue away in surgery so the person can live. Man is a tripart being, and I'm going to have a picture of this later. Body, soul, and spirit. We're housed in this body. Our soul is our mind, thoughts, and emotions. Our spirit is dead until it is given life by God. So what has to happen? Jesus said in John 7, 7, that every human must be, what? Born again. Born again in the spirit. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, he comes resonant within you. The Spirit of God comes in and gives you life. Life in your spirit allows you now to commune with the Holy God. You can, we can't do that without him. All world religions are trying to get to God. They cannot commune with God with the dead spirit. Only Christianity gives us a live spirit. So, our spirit is given life, allows us to commune with God. This is called justification. The righteousness of God has been imputed or credited to the believer. Now they're able to commune with the holy God. Prior to this, you can't do it. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God. All humans are born under the wrath of God and are enemies of God. In case you don't realize this, we've been here before, but just so you remember, turn to Romans chapter 5, and you're going to hear it again. What do we, we inculcate, teach by repetition. Good job, yes. So Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. That's eternal wrath. Through him. For if, when we were, oh, watch that, we're enemies, we were enemies of God. Every human is viewed as an enemy of God that is separated. God loves us, but we are viewed when we're separated from as enemies of God and under the wrath of God. We were then reconciled to God. Now that reconciled means is to be brought into right relationship with God through Jesus. Have been reconciled to God through the death of his son. It's the only way. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He's risen. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now that word is catalasso. I didn't write it up here because this is a review for you. Okay? It's the, it's the act of redemption where God takes our sin on himself and establishes a relationship of peace with mankind. He has withdrawn his Wrath. We've been reconciled to God. We are no longer experiencing wrath. That is good news. Jesus and only Jesus is the 
propitiation for the sins of mankind, satisfying the wrath of God for our sins. That's our 410 verse. God modeled sacrificial love for us. Therefore, because God is love, God resides in us, in us, we as an overflow of his love, verse 11, ought to love one another. Ought to love one another. Love for others demonstrates that God truly is in us. And again, it is not just words. It is not just words. It is, it, it is deeds. It is action. It is an action. Love will nourish. Love will cherish another person. And again, it's a direction of the will. So love does what? Nourishes and cherishes. Provides for, protects. Encourages growth. Verse 12 through 16. What is love really? Well, I think God demonstrated it by, by giving us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his Holy Spirit. This is a treasure that we have. Verse 12 through 16. No one has seen God at any time. Now that's confusing because there are some scriptures that say that people have seen God. We'll clear that up in just a second. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, and again, he's dealing with the Gnostics, God abides in him and he in God, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So let's address this very first sentence. What about those who have seen God? And we see, we see this in the scriptures in several different places where people have seen God. But the first thing you want to know is John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's right side, has made him known. So that God the one and only would be Jesus, who is at the right side, has made him known. Many claim to have seen God. Many claim to have seen God. Joseph Smith in Mormonism, walking through the woods, had a conversation with God the Father and, and decided to start Mormonism. But the trouble is God is spirit, and the scripture says no one has seen God. In the Old Testament, it says many people have saw God, and I think that what they were seeing is what we would call a Christophany, a, a, a vision or a seeing of the pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity not the Father. In Genesis 32.30, Jacob saw God. In Exodus 33.11, Moses also saw God. And in Deuteronomy 34.10, it says that Moses, there, there's not risen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So what are these people seeing? I believe they're seeing the pre-incarnate Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God, but they are not seeing God the Father. And it is important to note that I believe that so many people want a vision, so many people want a miracle, and I suggest to you that the people in Israel at the time of Moses had more credible miracles than anyone that's ever lived with the ten plagues, blood, frogs, lice, flies, all this stuff going on around them. Then seeing God, the, the, the Shekinah glory of God come down on the mountain, 
in Exodus 19. The mountain shaking and thundering, God's presence was there, and they were abject fear, and they saw all these manifestations. They go out into the wilderness, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, and they have all the Shekinah glory of God that's visible to them, but yet they had trouble, yet they had doubts, yet they had issues. We have what he says here, the Spirit of God resident within, which I think is greater than any vision or any outward thing that we can see. Because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that this stuff is true, that this is true. So evidence that we're saved, he has given us his Holy Spirit. Now, this is an important must-know. The entire Godhead dwells in you. Did you know that? Most people don't. The Holy Spirit indwells you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. But also, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in John 14.23, Jesus speaking about he and the Father says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Our, we, come, home, meno, dwelling within you. The Trinity abides in you. Folks, the Holy Spirit is in you. The whole triune God is in you. You are greatly loved. You are special to God. So, so, hear this. You are the temple of God. The triune God lives in you. I want to share with you just one verse, one more verse. And that's 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6.16. Now, this is going to be important for you. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now that word temple is naos, N-A-O-S. We've been here before. You probably had it written in your Bible if you heard this teaching before, but it means the holy place, the holy place. The Spirit of God dwells in the holy place within you. Now just keep that thought. For you are the temple of God. God dwells in the holy place within you. Now, keep that thought. I want to show you something. Now, we've had this triangle before. We've had this triangle before, and usually it is the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. This is God. There are three persons, one God. But since we're in 1 John and he's talking about love, the Father loves perfectly, the Son loves perfectly, the Holy Spirit loves perfectly. God is a triune God, one God, three persons. Now, that's what you have to know. Do you understand that? Is that clear as, as, as a bell? Well, I, hopefully it is. But this next one, which we have gone through before, I want to suggest to you something, that there's an overlap and there's a complex unity within the Godhead that is unknown to us. We can't understand this. So we have God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there's an overlap. There's complex unity within the Godhead. Three persons, one God, but there's an overlap. This, this, this entity that we call God, complex in unity, has total, complete harmony within the Godhead. Never has the Son had a thought that was contrary to the Father or the Father a thought contrary to the Spirit, or the Spirit to the Son. They are interwoven in such a way that they are working in complete harmony and unity. 
This is what God wants for his church. Since he is total unity and harmony, his desire for us is to walk in total unity and harmony. Now, with that stated, I want you to think about something. We are tripart beings, body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. What part of you does the Holy Spirit live in? He lives in your spirit, the naos, the holy place of God. That is where the Holy Spirit dwells. But you want to know that you are housed in a body. Now, what's happening to your body? Deteriorating, okay. It's deteriorating. But notice the body is our brain, our nerves, our cells, our five senses. Our five senses come in. That's just how we sense our world around us. You know, sight, smell, hearing, taste, touch, that sort of thing. Now, our senses then affect our soul. Now, the soul is the level of your mind, thought, feelings, emotions. We make choices here and that sort of thing. When you get saved, when you get saved, this is what happens. The Spirit of God comes in and quickens or brings to life your spirit, which now allows you to commune with the Holy God. Okay? Your soul has not been perfected. Your body has definitely not been perfected. Okay? Definitely not been perfected. I want you to think about something. The soul is the level where we're working on being transformed. What are we supposed to be doing in Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Transformed by the renewing of our mind, our mind, our will, our emotions, our coming in concert, our coming in line with God, so that the whole sanctification process is designed to conform my soul, my thinking, thoughts, feelings, emotions, to God. To God. Am I ever going to get this perfect while I'm here? No. Is my body ever going to be perfect while I'm here? No. The time of perfection will be when we're glorified. That's the state of perfection. Right now, all of us who are yielding to the Spirit, the Spirit has given us life, we're yielding to the Holy Spirit, are growing in this area and, and less and less controlled by our, by our senses that are inputting us or the things that are coming into us daily. We are, we are more and more given over to God. Now, does that make sense? It's important to know this because the Spirit of God has given you life, but it hasn't made you, it hasn't made you perfect. Sanctification is a process by which we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. We must participate with the Holy Spirit in this process of transformation. It's us working in concert with the Spirit. You can't get up one day and say, okay, I'm going to be a better person. I really mean it. Stomp your foot because you really mean it. It's not working. I have to yield to the Spirit of God in order to have a transformed mind. Think about this. If God is pure love dwelling in us, he gives us the ability to love others like he does. But if, but if, only if we abide in him, make our home in him, a sign that you're truly making your home in God is that we have love for the unlovable. Remember, it's not a feeling, it's a direction of the will. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. You can't pull this off on your own. This is something God does. It's his miracle. Now, how does God's supernatural love look when it is actually manifested in you? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Let me read it to you. Love is patient. When you start to see these quality changes in you, you know that you are actively involved in the sanctification process and you're being transformed in your mind and being conformed to the likeness of Christ. When you start saying love is patient, macrothumia, slow to heat up, so whatever your trigger is, your kid screaming and yelling, the guy cutting you off on the road, somebody at your work does something to you, and you're slower to heat up. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude. It's not rude, belittling. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That is essential. When you are dealing with another human being, a husband and a wife, or friends that get in a in an argument, and you have forgiven one another, that is done. No fair bringing it up again. Because love keeps no record of wrong. You don't keep bringing that thing up. Satan will want you to bring it up. The demonic realm is going to want you to bring it up to keep that thing churning. But no, you are not to do that. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And this is love. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres. Look at this kind of love is an overflow of the Holy Spirit controlling our lives. We can't pull it off on our own. It's only with the Spirit. Conclusion, what is love really? What is love really? Well, we've seen that love is not a feeling. It's an action of the will. It's sacrificial. We know that God modeled love by sending his Son we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us. That's a tremendous love gift. He gives us the ability to love other people. But I want you to think about something. Because we don't all pull this off perfectly. So take a breath. Let's be honest. What about the times when I don't love? What about the times when I'm prickly? When I'm the porcupine? When I fail or have doubts or faltering faith? No one, hear this, no one will walk this thing out perfect on this side. No one. And I like what Stephen Cole says about this. The issue is not perfection, but direction. Not perfection. We're not ever going to be perfect here. But am I growing? Am I becoming more like Christ? Don't get too down on yourself if, you, if you're not pulling this off perfectly like you think you should. It's direction. Just know that I'm growing when I recognize that I have acted in an unloving manner. I've confessed it. I've dealt with it. I've asked God to forgive me, and the person I've offended asked them to forgive me. Then you know you're growing. So, love is not smothering. Love is not demanding. Love is not forcing or insisting. Love is not rude. What is love really? Love is God loving us through it all. And that is an example for each one of us to love one another through it all, through the good, the bad, and the ugly. What is love really? Well, love is the Holy Spirit redirecting your life, getting you back on the right track. And that's, that's a great example. The Spirit of God gets us on the right track, and he uses us to help other people with the same issues we might have had in 2 Corinthians 1.3. So that we can help, if you had drug issues, you got, you've had a divorce, you've had some issue that you uniquely can help someone else. What is love really? Love is you loving others when they are unlovable. It's a direction of our will. What is love really? Love is a miracle of God living in us and changing us. 
nurturing us and cherishing us to maturity. Hang in, folks. It's not perfection, but it's direction. One day, and one day soon, we will be perfect. I don't care if you're living a whole 70, 80-year life and you're three years old right now. One day soon, you'll be 70 or 80, and it'll be over. 1 John 3, 2 says this, When he is revealed, we'll be like him, or we shall see him as he is. Then you can say, perfect, perfect, perfect. One of these days, this will all be over, and we'll all be home. That's the Doc Brown statement. I remember that. When I was in Vietnam, Ed Brown would always say, Hey, Rick, one of these days, it'll all be over, and we'll all be home. I go, Ed, we got 12 months left here. I mean, we got, what are you talking about? It'll all be over soon, Rick. It'll all be over soon. Folks, Jesus is coming for us. This is what love really is. He is our example of nourishing and cherishing to maturity. And that is what we are to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you have used Josh McDowell to help us with this concept of love, providing for and protecting, nurturing and cherishing, nourishing and cherishing to maturity. Thank you that you have been patient with us in this process. Now may we be patient with others in the process. Lord, speak to each one of our hearts. You know where we are in this love paradigm, this love line. Are we truly looking more like Jesus and less like us? That's a question for each one of us. Holy Spirit, do your work within us. Change us. We don't want to be the same. We want to be actively involved in the process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ, yielding to you. Direct our steps, Lord. Help us to hear the gentle voice of the shepherd saying, this is the way, walk in. Thank you for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.